Welcome to the Institute of Catholic Culture, a nonprofit Catholic organization dedicated to the re-evangelization of our society through educational and cultural programs offered to the public at no charge. This and other presentations, hundreds of hours of audio, are available for free on our website, www.instituteofcatholicculture.org. There you can listen to or download educational programs related to all aspects of our divine faith, and you can review our schedule of upcoming events. We hope you can join us in person. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Thank you, Lord, for bringing us together as a community of learning on a cold, frigid night. Bless our inquiry, enlighten our intellect, inflame our hearts, and strengthen our will through Christ our Lord. Amen. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. This is our second of three talks. A special welcome to those who were unable to make the first talk. You will be completely lost and you will have no idea what we will do tonight. So in order to make certain that does not happen, uh, we can make sense of this as an independent lecture, but I would like to begin just by summarizing briefly in two or three minutes what we tried to accomplish last time, and also to restate uh, our topic and the problem, so to speak. So our topic is converting the pagans, how Christianity baptized Greek philosophy. Now the problem in a word is how to understand Christian, Christianity's relationship to philosophy. Now, we should say here right from the start that the word philosophy in ancient thought means something a little bit different from today. The ancient meaning, which actually carried through all the way until the Middle Ages and even beyond, was the sum total of learning, but particularly the highest kinds of learning, the most formal, the most basic, the most abstract, but the philosophical disciplines included basically all of higher learning. So we have to have that broader sense. And just think of the word, uh, you know, a PhD. Uh, you can have a PhD in today in molecular biology, which is certainly not a science of, of all of being. It's this, right, little small part of it. Or a, PhD in psychological counseling, all that reflects the fact that no matter what your specialty is, you participate in this knowledge of the whole in some sense, and therefore that even your little specialization, your little branch, is also part of philosophy, so to speak. So that's the sense, then, of philosophy that we want to have in mind. And that certainly is true when we think of Greek philosophy. When we think of somebody, for example, like Aristotle, Aristotle divided philosophy into different kinds of, not so philosophies, there's just only one philosophy, but different parts. For example, there was the part concerned with human beings. There was the science of the one, which uh, insofar as we're talking about human action, the human being as an agent, that would be called ethics. And then he called economics the, the science of the family. And then when you talk about the science of the city or the commonwealth, 
then you would talk about politics. So, but all of, them, all of these would be part of a philosophy. So how do we understand, then, Christianity's relationship to philosophy? We can ask this question historically with respect to one particular era, and we are concentrating, uh, especially today, on the early church. But you can ask the question even today, what is the relationship of our faith to philosophy? And when we talk about how Christianity baptized Greek philosophy, we're saying something a, a little bit more than that. We're also saying that Greek philosophy profoundly affected and shaped the career of Christianity, particularly in terms of the way it thought about itself and still does. Now, if we can just sharpen the problem a bit, the problem is this. If Christianity is influenced by philosophy or even Greek philosophy, don't we have a mixed bag here? Two sources, so to speak. Don't we have a, a hybrid result, something that is partly divine and partly human, but not according to God's design, but rather according to our own human design? And would the critique then of someone like Martin Luther hold, namely that when you import Greek philosophical categories or Roman or English or French or German or American or whatever, are you not polluting the gospel? And as a result, what you have then is, is only pretend Christianity. So we have to find a way of understanding the problem aright in order to be able to withstand that critique of Martin Luther and others. The last time we tried to do three basic things. We began with some introductory issues, and I tried to first show in our introduction that our topic here is not an exploration of a particular tenet or doctrine of the creed. For example, if we were studying the, the Blessed Trinity or the Holy Eucharist or the Sacrament of Confirmation, that would be a distinct topic. That would be a first order subject matter. But we're rather talking about something that's, that stands back. It's, it's closer to a second order. It has to do with the way we understand uh, our faith and, and how it developed. And it is under that part of theology that we call fundamental theology, dealing with issues that have to do with how we understand the faith, how the faith is, is transmitted, the meaning of faith, how it appeals to the human mind, and to the human heart, and, and so forth. Second, we tried to distinguish first the gospel and the kingdom, and we talked about the Old Testament equivalent, or the covenant, and then the world, and tried to argue that all three of these influence the other two. So the gospel influences the kingdom of God. In fact, it gives it its very articulation. The kingdom of God influences the world insofar as Christianity has left a, an imprint on first Western and now world civilization, and vice versa, which is again our problem of the impact that philosophy, and especially Greek philosophy, has had on Christianity. And uh, then the last thing that we tried to do was understand some brief teachings on Revelation and learn that 
revelation precisely as such has to take into account the receiver, the human being. God does this. God's revelation is, is only a revelation if it is successfully communicated to us. So even though it is true that God raises up our nature through grace, nonetheless, grace, even though in some sense it transforms nature, cannot introduce something completely foreign. We don't lose our humanity with grace. Rather, we experience our humanity at a deeper level. So grace, uh, to use the words of St. Thomas, is always compatible with, is, is always fulfilling in some sense, at the same time that it transcends our human nature. But for revelation, what this means is that God's word, if it's going to be a word that is humanly receivable, has to be something that fits human ears and human intellects. And so we looked then at the relation of revelation to the human mind and to the human heart to a degree in human experience. And we were just beginning to look at some scriptural examples of how reason is caught up in God's revelation when we were interrupted by the midnight bell, or rather the 8.30 bell. And so I had to stop in the middle of a preposition and today we pick up then where we left off. Now, looking at our outline, what I did is I simply um, repeated some things that I had that first uh, day, namely the, the second page, uh, and I reversed the order a little bit here, uh, especially uh, because of our newcomers. So now, we, looking at our outline, we've looked at uh, the first a couple of things there, and we already are on now the scriptural approach to human reason. And I just want to repeat there what I said last time, that the scriptures contain various forms of revelation. And just let's look at these eight possibilities here. We have texts that are reflective. The letter to the Romans, chapters 1 through 8, which offers us the longest sustained argument in all of scripture, is a reflection on the meaning of the gospel. And by reflection, I mean it's the, the, the gospel has already been articulated, it's already been proclaimed, both in the words and deeds of Christ. The resurrection is behind St. Paul now. And so he's stepping back and he's giving an account for it and trying to understand it in a new way. So that's what we mean by reflective. Whereas a text such as the crossing of the Red Sea is originative because it is giving us right there, almost in the first uh, in the present tense, and a happening. And so we are there. The movie is on, so to speak. You see the difference there between a text that means to be originating, and novels, for, exa for example, often have this, and, and a good novel reads in that almost that present tense. And we even talk about the historical present, where an historian will write in the present just so you're there. So you, you don your your ancient garb, so to speak, and step right into history uh, as if it's going on right now and you forget about everything that comes afterward. Okay, secondly, then we have uh, texts that are, that are systematic, that, that start here and argue something through or make a claim. Think even in some sense of a parable. A parable, in a way, as a story, has a certain systematic character to it. It has a beginning, a middle, and an end. It has a plot. Okay, now, system is going to look very different in a formal argument such as we find in Romans 1 through 8. 
It's going to look different in the case of a, of a story, of a narrative that has um, something to teach us, in the, in, as in the case of, of, of a parable. Let's contrast that to our fourth year, to an, a chronological text. For example, 1 Kings or 2 Kings or 1 Samuel, 2 Samuel. Then this happened, and then this happened, and then this happened, and then this happened. The Gospel of Mark is written that way. The most common word in the Gospel of Mark is the Greek word kai, K-A-I, meaning and. And the older translations were rather faithful to this. And then this happened, and then this happened, and then this happened. It's not systematic. It's rather chronological, so that you need, obviously, different forms of writing to reflect different aspects of reality in general. And the same thing is true with Revelation. Now we have uh, texts that are reasoned, that appeal to uh, reason. Think of that parable where Jesus says, so what, what would the owner of the vineyard do? So you stop and you think, you know. He sent his, his son out, his son was killed, sends out his best men uh, to get the, the goods from the, from the vineyard and they, and they kill, maltreat and kill them too. What would the owner of the vineyard do? So you reflect on human experience and you say, well, He'd go in there with an army and take those brutes out, okay? And that's a reflection on, on human experience. And, and, and Jesus appears then to, to affirm that, but in fact, as we know, precisely the opposite happens in reality. But what's interesting there is that the Lord asks us to think it through. Use your common sense here. He says, you know, uh, this is appropriate with our cold weather, you know uh, how the, uh, the, the, the south wind blows, and you say, this will happen. You know, the north wind, right? So just today, you say, you know a polar vortex is happening, so you know what to do, yes? Get in your warm, cozy, um, bare skin and, and hibernate in front of the fireplace. Okay, so that's an appeal to reason. On the other hand, in the Old Testament, when the Lord is leading the people through the desert, he doesn't sit them around in a council and say, let's dialogue and come up here with a communal decision about the best route. He tells them what to do. Okay, here are marching orders, literally. So again, different texts and different kinds of revelation for different needs and different experiences. And then finally, we have uh, texts and parts of revelation, expressions of revelation, that are going to be more causal, have to do with causes, okay? Uh, the best example is, is right at the very beginning, right? Genesis chapter 1. What caused the earth? And, and so we learn that God is the cause of the earth and he's the cause of its order and its beauty. So that's an example then of causal argumentation, that presentation in Genesis chapter 1. Now, we can also have texts that rather talk about effects, Okay and try to understand and, and, and explain why something happens, okay? And it, it, we can think of examples uh, in the New Testament where the apostles are amazed, okay, that they can't heal, for example, it's an effect. And so they looked to Jesus then for some causal explanation for that. Now, the reason I went through those eight is that I want to argue that that part of Revelation in which reason is especially operative will be texts that are reflective, systematic, reasoned, and causal. So there are other texts that are, that are those other uh, dimensions, and those are good too, 
So we're not saying that if a text or a revelatory experience doesn't have a lot of reason in it that there's something deficient. What we're simply saying is that that's another part of the mystery that we're simply not dealing with. We're dealing with this part because we're concerned with how Christianity is influenced by and absorbs uh, and is in some sense transformed by ancient Greek thought. And we'll say Roman thought as well. Let's now take out a few minutes and, and look at some uh, Old Testament foreshadowings or adumbrations now of reason. And I brought my own scripture here, and it's all marked up, ready to go, but uh, if you brought yours, we can look at these together. I'm, I'm using the RSV. This, there, there are more contemporary RSVs than this one. This one still has the V's and the vows, but I know how to read those. So that'll work, and um, we can translate those into, into the U's as well. Okay, first, the contribution of human sinfulness, okay? Uh, the sin in the garden. Uh, this is interesting, not because it's so much, uh, it's not so much um, an example of reason being caught up in revelation as giving us the very, as it were, human situation that we have to deal with ever since, okay? O Felix culpa, O happy fault, as uh, it says in the, as we sing in the exaltet at the Easter vigil, uh, means that it's in some sense that the mistake, the sin of our first parents has been converted by God into a blessing through the redemptive work of Christ. But what's interesting about that passage is that right at the outset, you might say, of salvation history, there's a human contribution so to speak. Not so much in the form of reason, but in the form of mistake. And that ever since then, our experience of, of God's revelation and our experience of his salvation is in part a response to a mistake that human beings have made. And this is interesting because God could have simply said, my revelation will not take into account human beings doing anything good or bad. My revelation is simply going to come down. Here it is, whether you like it or not, no ifs, ands, or buts. But in fact, the fact that God, as it were, changed his course of action and had to introduce plan B, big secret, plan B was actually plan A all along, <laughs> uh, means that we have somehow contributed then to the very structure and shape of God's revelation. And therefore, that's early on already some evidence that revelation is, is a joint divine human affair. Okay? And if you think through, as we did last time, the very meaning of revelation that involves a speaker and a spoken to, it involves one who hears and one who listens, it involves uh, an agent and one who responds, uh, then it follows that it's going to be relational. Now, the wrong way to think about that is, oh, well, God is always the agent and we're the passive one. He's the speaker and we're the spoken to. Not true. Look at scripture. We saw last time in that conversation between Abraham and God that sometimes Abraham speaks. And so God is listening. Revelation works, in fact, both ways. So God's revelation absorbs, includes within it, right there, a human contribution, which is really 
fascinating as it were gives us already an early justification for God's allowing later other human reason to participate in shaping the very understanding of his revelation. Now, let's look at a, a passage from the first of the writing prophets, whose name was Amos. He's the first of the minor prophets, and he's writing in the 8th century. So he's found, uh, I can't tell you where in your book, but um, in, the, in the prophets section, after the big ones. So this would be after Isaiah and Jeremiah. And what we need is chapter 7 of Amos, verses 1 through 6. So I'm supposed to give you a little time to find it. Tick-tock, 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 tick-tock. Okay, there we go. Let me read this for you, okay? 7, 1 through 6, Amos, A-M-O-S. Thus, the Lord God showed me, behold, he was forming locusts in the beginning of the shooting up of the latter growth. And lo, it was the latter growth after the king's mowings. The king's mowings refers to that first time through in which you're paying your taxes. Okay, it's like April 15th. When they had finished eating the grass of the land, I said, O Lord God, forgive, I beseech you. How can Jacob stand? He is so small. Okay, so the Lord wants to, to punish the people with locusts. Amos stands in the breach and says, I beseech you, how can Jacob stand? He is so small. So the Lord repented concerning this. It shall not be. Okay, we won't read on, but if you did, you would see something similar happens with respect to a judgment by fire. Again, Amos stands in the breach and the Lord backs off. And of course, this reminds us very much of when the Lord wanted to take out his people too. Uh, not into the desert, but another way, and Moses stood in the breach uh, many uh, centuries earlier. Now, again, this is important as an example because what it is showing is that God gives the impression here that he is reshaping his revelatory plan according to human will, according to human agency. You know, we always talk about, you know, thy will be done, but when we think it through, when Jesus says in, later in the New Testament, asking you shall receive, what that means is that God will sometimes to do our will, which is rather exciting. I try to take advantage of that particular clause from time to time, although I don't think I do it as often as I should. Okay, so... These examples suggest uh, that the patriarchs and the prophets are holding God to a, to a standard of moral excellence uh, beyond him, which, of course, is impossible. But in doing so, they're showing the reasonableness of their position. It is a good thing not to, uh, to kill human beings in general. It is good to uh, save even the guilty uh, insofar as we can and to give them an opportunity to repent and so forth. If you asked Amos to expand on that, he would probably give the kind of arguments that you or I would give in similar circumstances. Now, another example in which human reason is at work, and this would be too long and involved, so we won't look at a text, so I just ask you to take my word for it, is that if you go very carefully with a fine-tooth comb through the accounts of the law, whether spelled out in detail, in Exodus, Numbers, Leviticus and Deuteronomy in the so-called Pentateuch books, the Torah, you will find that the later 
texts often are correcting and modifying earlier ones in light of new situations. For example, as, as the, the Jewish people move from a nomadic culture of wandering and being primarily shepherds to an agricultural society, they had to make some changes in their law. A law that's always the same, especially, especially we're talking now about particular laws, can end up being just when, when it's first promulgated, but later unjust because new circumstances arise. And that's why changes in law are, are often necessary, not with respect to first principles, which are... Uh, Supreme Court and other justices don't seem to understand, but with respect to particular applications, okay? So you would see that then that, that Revelation, insofar as it is, is designed for a people that is historical, okay? We're talking about a revelation that is unfolding over a period of, what, roughly 1,800 years. Uh, it follows then that that very structure of that revelation is going to be reshaped insofar as new circumstances arise with respect to particular laws. Now, why are laws changed? Again, appeal to reason. It is reasonable, given these new circumstances, to make this alteration in order to bring about a new expression of justice. Okay, another uh, example would be then how the prophets changed the law in a more radical sense. We're not talking now about uh, minute details. Uh, we're talking rather about a fundamental issue. And, and to look at that, let's um, examine briefly two twin psalms, 50 and 51, that are in different ways making the same point. So if you can find the psalms in your Bible... Psalm 50 first. We need uh, verse 7 and following. Now, this is interesting, this psalm, because, in fact, if we could just start from the beginning, it, what it is is, is a, a retrieval, in a way, of the images of, of Mount Sinai way back in the book of Exodus that, that we're roughly familiar with or very familiar with. Okay? Mount Sinai, where, where the theophany takes place, the Ten Commandments, where... The, the peals of thunder and the fire and the lightning and God comes down and Moses then uh, receives the Ten Commandments. Okay, so when you start out 50, you would think that we have a, a revisitation of this. The Mighty One, God the Lord, speaks and summons the earth, not Israel, but now no, notice the change. The entire earth now is gathered. This is, this is interesting. From the rising of the sun to its setting, which means all peoples from east to west. Out of Zion, the perfection of beauty, God shines forth. Okay, so we're not in the desert now. We're in Jerusalem. We're in Zion. But all the nations are, are assembled there. Our God comes. He does not keep silence. Before him is a devouring fire. Around him a mighty tempest. So you see, it's the same imagery deliberately set up as if this is a new exodus. And this is not meant to be, of course, an historical moment like exodus. This is meant to be rather a way of thinking about what, what this new prophecy is going to be. So it's an, it's an imaginative uh, revelation, so to speak. Okay, so what does the Lord say? He, he calls to the heavens above and to the earth that he may judge his people. Gather to me my faithful ones who made a covenant with me by sacrifice. The heavens declare his righteousness, for God himself is the judge. Okay, so now we're ready. Are we going to get the Ten Commandments? No, something very different. Hear, O my people, and I will speak. O Israel, I will testify against you. Now, 
the bad news here is that the judge is also the prosecutor, okay? We split up those roles today, which is probably a good thing to do, but in this psalm, uh, uh, it's a little different. God's playing both roles, so there's no way you're going to get out the back door, okay? For, for I am God, your God. I do not reprove you, reprove you for your sacrifices. Your burnt offerings are continually before me. I will accept no bull from your house, no he-goat from your folds. For every beast of the forest is mine, the cattle on a thousand hills. I know all the birds of the air, and all that moves in the field is mine. Now, when you look at that very carefully, you might think that the Lord is saying, as we're familiar with, um, I'm not going to accept your burnt offerings and your sacrifices because your hearts are polluted. You know, you're, you're offering these sacrifices, but then you're going out and you're doing all sorts of wicked crimes. And he's going to say that in a minute. But he's saying something here even more uh, profound in a way. He's saying that I don't need that. I am the Lord of heaven and earth. And so... I, I needed a, a, a refined and more purified form of worship. This is a new moment in, in, in Israelite history, so to speak. You know, we talk about the law and the prophets. We would do better to talk about the law and the new law because the prophets are giving us a new law. And we miss that when, when we simply call them the prophets. This is a new law. And so this is a fundamental revision of the attitude that we find in the Pentateuch. And you can see how Christ is going to be building on this. So he's not coming out of a vacuum. It's not like, you know, the Old Testament was this way and now Jesus is doing it this way. We have to see that he's in continuity with a revelatory tradition that is already in uh, a history of conversion. Okay, now let's go on. If I were hungry, I would not tell you, for the world and all that it is is mine. Do I eat the flesh of bulls or drink the blood of goats? Update your theology of God, so to speak, okay? Don't think of me as just another Canaanite bull god or, or something that, that needs, uh, in some crazy way, the blood of animals, and that I get my thrills through that, okay? I am spirit. I'm a spiritual uh, being, and, and you have to think about the very nature of sacrifice very differently, is what this psalm is saying. So what, what, what are we supposed to do? Well, here it is, 14. Offer to God a sacrifice of thanksgiving and pay your vows to the Most High. And call upon me in the day of trouble. I will deliver you and you shall glorify me. Now, we're not going to read further, but if we did, we would hear then that, um, that he goes on to criticize the sinner, okay, those who uh, give the impression that they're doing the offerings and reciting all the right formulas, but in fact are consorting with the wicked. Interesting. Not, not those who are committing adultery, but those who consort with adulterers and so forth. He doesn't even bother dealing with the super wicked. They, they don't even get a, a chance to show up in this psalm. But even those who are compromising, in a way, uh, the, the spirit of the law, meant in the right sense now, which is the true law, even those people are, are given a second reason why their strategy is all wrong, because they're hypocrites. But even if I wasn't a hypocrite, even if my own life was basically in order, according to Old Testament standards, the Lord is still saying, the blood from your goats and calves is not making my day. Okay? Big, big news here. Now, 51, Psalm 51 builds on this. This is the famous Miserere Psalm, 
that is, is the, is the um, repentance of a sinner. And it's often associated with David uh, praying this after his sin of uh, concerning Bathsheba and then the murder of her husband, Uriah, which he arranged uh, in a very uh, deceitful, conniving, and immoral way. Okay, so anyway, if we can just uh, uh, skip over the... Um, the repentance part, and move to verse 16. For you have no delight in sacrifice. Were I to give a burnt offering, you would not be pleased. The sacrifice acceptable to God is a broken spirit. A broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. Now we should read that a couple of ways. We should read that also in light of, of Christ, okay, who stands in then, uh, and becomes the new sacrifice. So the sacrifice of Christ has to be understood as the, as the perfect expression of this movement already from exteriority to interiority, from an, where I first begin by sacrificing animals as somehow expressing my desire for repentance to now sacrifice slaying my heart, okay, which involves a, what? A converted life. So that the old, to use the language of St. Paul then, the old man, the old woman, dies and is replaced by someone new. Okay, so again, you see the continuity in thought between 50 here and 51. Now let's just go to the ending, which is something very interesting here. Do good to Zion in your good pleasure. This is addressed to the Lord, obviously. Rebuild the walls of Jerusalem. This is after the destruction of Jerusalem. This is a post-587 psalm. And therefore, these verses here could not possibly come from David. Then will you delight in right sacrifices, in burnt offerings and whole burnt offerings. Then bulls will be offered on your altar. Now, the, every, almost every um, commentator and every major edition that, uh, is going to add what my RSV says. It says, a later edition designed to modify the anti-sacrificial spirit of the preceding verses and to adapt the psalm to liturgical use. Okay, so we see here is a later scribe who's not comfortable with this anti-sacrificial spirit of Psalm 50 and 51. So what he does is he adds this little pious thought in the end that literally contradicts what we read earlier. And he hopes that we will think, well, don't take that too seriously. God wants you to kind of slay your heart, but Continue with the burnt offerings as well, okay? Uh, now, how do you deal with that? I mean, if you're just a scripture scholar and you're not approaching it from the point of view of faith, you say, oh, you know, a variety of voices and diversity and plurality of, of uh, approaches, which is, you know, we celebrate that today, right, diversity. Uh, but that's not good enough, obviously, because this is all God's revelation. So God's revelation is built out of a fragmentation of voices that come together, nonetheless, and give us these competing understandings. And so, in a way, we do have to keep and hold both together. And we have to wait for the resolution, and we will get it eventually in the New Testament. Okay, so, uh, the reason that we spent some time with that there is to see, again, how the, the prophets really um, are making a fundamental change to the law, which, in fact, is now using, as it were, human experience and human reason to make the claim, as opposed to simply saying, the word of the Lord came to me and said, no more burnt offerings, okay? 
I mean, if you read Psalm 51 through, you can see the logic that in some sense this is what God really wants. When you, when you study the nature of human sinfulness, the nature of repentance and forgiveness, this is the, the, the sacrifice that God is looking for. So, so the, these changes here then are, are only possible through a reasoned approach to revelation. And finally, this is a big one, we could just look at one brief example, the wisdom books. The wisdom books, which uh, you could say the Psalms are in there, but the Psalms really are, have everything in there. So you have history in there, you have wisdom literature and so forth. But the better uh, examples here of the wisdom literature would be the books of Job, uh, Proverbs, uh, Ecclesiastes, uh, the Song of Songs, and the Book of Wisdom itself, which is a very, and Surah, those are the big uh, books of wisdom, Surah uh, and wisdom being quite late. Now, let's just look at the wisdom. In my book, it's right here at the end because this follows the, um, the Protestant, um, this is the, sort of the uh, Protestant RSV, and uh, they put this at the end because they, don't cons- they consider this part of the Apocrypha. So it might be your, toward the end of your book or it might be in the middle, wherever your, your wisdom literature is found. These books are usually grouped together. And we need wisdom of Solomon uh, chapter 6. Now, when you go, for example, through the book of Proverbs, you'll find a common appeal to sense, an appeal to common sense, to human experience, and to be rooted into the tradition and do what your parents did, especially follow in the ways of your father, okay? And, and you assume that he is a wise and, and uh, moral individual, according to the, the wisdom literature. Okay, so be imbibed in that, but, but there's a constant reference uh, and contrast between the wise person and the fool. And when you read that through, you see, again, it's an appeal to common experience. The fool never learns, okay? The fool keeps making the same mistake. The fool keeps falling into moral error over and over and over again. So this is literature that is found in the Old Testament, but could be found, really, in many respects, uh, in any uh, religion or ethical system because it's based on the, the reasonability of proper human conduct. Now, wisdom was all often portrayed as a woman, lady wisdom, okay? And this is very strong in um, the book of wisdom, okay? So, for example, we find in, in chapter 6, verse 12, this beautiful description of her, okay? Wisdom is radiant and unfading, and she is easily discerned by those who love her and is found by those who seek her. She hastens to make herself known. He who rises early to seek her will have no gift difficulty, for he will find her sitting at his gates. Let's look at a, a, a companion uh, verse, which uh, might be even better, from the book of Proverbs, which is uh, much earlier, several centuries earlier, uh, but develops this theme uh, as well. And again, we need Proverbs 7 and 8. And there's a contrast here between the fool who falls in for a prostitute and the wise individual who is seduced by Lady Wisdom. This is a very interesting mix of, of reason and sensuality, so to speak. So in chapter 7, we have the wise man looking out, out uh, his window, verse 6. For at the window of my house I have looked out through my lattice, and I have seen among uh, the simple, I have perceived among the youths a young man without sense, passing along the street near her corner, taking the road to her house, in the twilight, in the evening, at the time of night and darkness. And lo, a woman meets him dressed as a harlot, wily of heart. 
She is loud and wayward. Her feet do not stay at home. Okay, we're not going to read any further because this is adult literature. But <laughs> we, we find that she's married. Her husband is, is away on a business trip. And so she wants to have a wild evening with this fool. Okay? So... In verse 21, with much seductive speech, she persuades him with her smooth talk, she compels him. Okay, we get the picture. Now let's contrast that to verse 8 here, on chapter 8, verse 1. Does not wisdom call, does not understanding raise her voice? On the heights beside the way, in the paths she takes her stand, beside the gates in front of the town, at the entrance of the portal she cries aloud. Women are not supposed to be there at the gates in front of the town. So what she's doing there is seducing, you see, uh, this young man to wisdom. It's a, it's a deliberate uh, attempt to offset the attractions of evil with the attractions of good. And so seductive language is used here in order to lead him to, to righteousness, okay? And, and, but when you just keep going through this, you just see the, the constant references to wisdom, to prudence, to common sense, to human experience, and to basic uh, moral goodness. And again, the contribution of reason here is, is through and through uh, obvious. Okay, now we're not getting as far as I would like in terms of our time, so we're not going to look at any more examples of scripture. I'm just going to run through these very quickly and on our outline to talk about the New Testament and see how this appeal to reason continues in many passages and delivers a certain uh, approach to revelation. I mentioned last time the difference between the teaching Christ and the Socratic Christ. And I put that in, in quotation marks. But what I mean by that, if you go through the various Gospels and count the number of times that Jesus asks questions, it's amazing. And you'd probably get a dialogue going there if, if people would respond, but often they don't. They're embarrassed because uh, of the answer they will give. Like, think of that passage where he asks whether the baptism of, of John is from heaven or from human beings. And no matter what they say, they're either going to get the people angry at them or they're going to confirm uh, that the prophecy of John the Baptist uh, for uh, Jesus is valid. So they're in a trap, so they, they shut up. So you're not going to get a whole lot of dialogue there, obviously. And Jesus takes advantage of that. Another time he says, they won't answer. He says, well, then neither will I answer either. I think it's that passage right there, okay? But sometimes you do get some answers and you get something going. So he doesn't simply lay down the law or lay down the truth. He asks questions to get people to think, okay? As, um, who, do, who, um, who, do this, who do people say that, 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 that I am, okay, that the Son of Man is? Okay, um, think it through. And what do you say? Okay, um, so that's the, that's the new Torah uh, style that I'm talking about that we already see in, a, in, in, in Psalm 50, 51, and many of the later prophets. So as I write here, the engagement with others then requires them to think. Okay, so, so questions do this. And, and, and when, you, when you look at some of the, um, the early dialogues of Plato, uh, where Socrates is the principal character, uh, you will see that it, it's question after answer after question after answer. So that's why I use that particular um, um, word to describe that. Now, the parables often uh, offer also excellent examples of human response and even participation. 
And note the human element and the reasoning element and the human experience element in the parables as well. Okay, so uh, an appeal to common experience. Now, some of them are a little more foreign to us today because we have to, we have to learn a little bit about the context of shepherds and, and uh, first century uh, Palestinian farming and so forth, and also the economy. For example, that difficult um, parable of the unjust steward who makes a deal with his guys um, and, and reduces all their... Um, their payments when he's fired in order to have friends once he's homeless, okay? You have to know a little bit about the economy to see how that makes sense. But once you do that, you can see that the, the parables that Jesus here is offering is not, you know, true as high in the sky, but rather is, is, it's making a comparison of the kingdom of God to ordinary human experience. And you have to use your human reason then to make the connection. Okay, reason is logic. An excellent example is found in 1 Corinthians 15, where St. Paul is trying to um, correct the error that there's no resurrection of the dead. Okay? So he says, well, if there's no resurrection of, of the dead, then Christ did not uh, die. I'm supposed to use this board from time to time, so let me do it. Okay, so uh, if there's no resurrection uh, from the dead, then Christ did not rise. Because if there's no resurrection, then Christ did not. For two reasons. First is he, he's, a, he's human the re, like the rest of us, and so if nobody rises from the dead, if it's metaphysically impossible, then he can't do it either, okay? And secondly, what did he bother doing it for if there's no, if there, if there's no resurrection, okay? Then Christ um, uh, did not uh, uh, rise, okay? Well, he says, well, um, and, then, and, then he, and then he says, if, if Christ did not rise, then our faith is in vain. But... This is a double modus tollens. Modus tollens is a form of logic that looks like this. Um, if P, then Q. If not, then not Q, then not P. So here's an example where he's using a, a form of logic. But it's not the case that our faith is in vain. And therefore, it's not the case that, that Christ did not rise. And therefore, it's not the case that there's no resurrection from the dead. He, he begins with a false statement here and then shows through, through his modus tollens form of argument that it cannot be true. And it's interesting here too that in a way you see how you can begin with a certain revelatory statement and then on the basis of it you can make a new claim, and the church has done this in, in subsequent history many, many times in the development of doctrine, based on the logic of the original revelation. You're expanding it. You're saying if you really understand this mystery, then it follows, and this must be the case as well. Okay, so you, so you can get further in a way than you would have just with an original doctrine. But you can't do this without reason and without formal logic. Now, uh, when you look at the structure and the argument of Romans and, and Hebrews, the, the book of Hebrews, the letter to the Hebrews, is an extremely complicated uh, structure that has lots of different things going on. It's sort of like, a, um, this, it's like the structure of a symphony. If, uh, if, that, if, you, if you're familiar with the structure of the symphony, how a great composer is interweaving different themes that are dialoguing with each other and so on and so forth. And Hebrews is doing that, so it's a very complex uh, structure. Uh, but in those various strands, uh, there's very tight reasoning and argumentation that's going on. And if you patiently go through the text, it's very rewarding. Okay, so my summary remark then is that we need to um, uh, be alert then to the unique reasoning side of revelation and scripture. Reflective, systematic, reasoned, and causal.
let's um, then now, uh, I mentioned this last time, that the mystery of the incarnation now becomes a further ground of our justification for the use of reason. The word reason in Greek, uh, one of the, the, the there's several, but is logos, okay? The word logos, which the equivalent in Latin is ratio. We don't have any word in any contemporary Indo-European language that captures the breadth of that word. It means system, nature, word, intelligibility, speech, wisdom. I mean, it means so much. We just don't have any word that captures it all. But one of the things that logos means then is, is word, okay? So insofar as spirit takes on flesh, insofar as the word takes on flesh means now that, that, that God enters into our humanity, which includes our reason and our reasonability. And so that what we had in the, in the Old Testament is, is just a foreshadowing of the important role now that reason must play, or that is to say our entire humanity must play now insofar as God is taking it on for himself. Okay, And therefore, the structure of Revelation is going to be even more reasoning in the New Testament than the Old. Now, let's uh, say theologically, this is going to be a very uh, important point, the two fundamental reasons for what I call a revelational deference to reason, okay? In other words, bowing to reason and incorporating reason into God's revelation. Uh, the first is because of the very structure of the world. And to see this, we have to, to talk about creation. Everything that is, as St. Thomas will later say very succinctly, everything that exists is either God or from God. Okay? Now, obviously, we're not talking about sin, uh, because sin, in a way, does, is, is, uh, is the negation of, of, of being. So, but just to keep things uh, simple, what we want to say, then, is that everything is either God or from God, and therefore, everything, in some sense, will be included in God's revelation. We'll talk about this next time in greater detail. And this is going to be a huge difference with paganism. This is why Christianity, and Judaism before it, can embrace reason in a way that other religions have difficulty with. Because God is the creator of reason. So reason is not something that stands over against him. The pagan view of the world is this, that the god, or the gods, depending upon how many you have in your arsenal, the god or gods belong to the whole. They belong to the universe. So that what, what is, is the gods and everything else. Okay? So think of Greek mythology, for example. Okay? Or pagan mythology. Or even think of contemporary Eastern religions. Okay? In which the, 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 the principle, the spiritual principle, belongs to a larger whole. The Judeo-Christian view is extremely unique. And it's this. God plus the world is not greater than God. Said, that doesn't, I can't, I'm having trouble adding that up. Well, your math has to be corrected because that's the way it is. The, the fullness of being is God so that there's nothing in the world, even though there's a, there's a more in the sense that there's more stuff, that's, that there's, there's no more excellence or, or, because God is infinite beauty, excellence, uh, being, everything. Okay, So that it's not like, oh, we got even something more and that God belongs to this larger whole. God is, even if God had never created the world, he would be no less generous than he is, no less excellent and good. 
Okay, so God does not need the world in order uh, to become perfect or in order to fulfill his potential. Okay, it is an act of sheer generosity on his part. He doesn't, strictly speaking, get anything out of it except glory. And glory is nothing than to manifest himself to the beings he created. So it means pretty much the same thing. Okay, so what, what, what this is telling us then is that, first of all, that everything that is is intelligible, okay, because it comes from God. Secondly, that reason itself is a gift from God and therefore has to be included some, in some sense in our faith. And so what I'm going to argue next time that the best way to think about it is not really in terms of faith and reason, because then we're back to that false dichotomy. You know, how, how can we reconcile, you know, faith and science? And it's like, you know, oh, we've got to protect our God from science. We've got to protect our God from the world. And, you know, and so put armor on him. And that's ridiculous. You know, St. Thomas says, uh, we'll talk about this briefly next time, you know, there can be no conflict between what the world delivers to us, and t if it's true, and what our faith tells us. Because there's one God who is overall, as St. Paul says. Okay, so, um, so that, that reason has to be, when we think about this doctrine of, 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 of revelation, uh, this doctrine of, of creation, okay, that everything that is is either God or from God, this means that reason has to be included, and that reason is our way, then, of bringing God's world into the faith. Second, as I just said, the mystery of the Incarnation is the ultimate ground of theological justification because God is now doing something new. Behold, I'm doing something new. Okay, the new covenant. The new creation is this, is that what he, he wildly exceeded the expectations of the Old Testament, God takes on his own creation and makes it included in his own person, in the person of Christ. So he now enjoys a human concrete nature as its own. And therefore, human experience, human reason are included in the divine word, and therefore the divine revelation, because Christ is the revelation of God. And therefore, it follows, then, that reason must take um, a high and supreme role, in the, in, not simply in the understanding of our faith, but rather in the very meaning of revelation. Now, we didn't get as far as, we, as I would have liked. Next time, I just want to uh, run very uh, quickly. Let's just, in our remaining two minutes here, just get a preview of next week's uh, show. Okay? So what we will do, again, we finished page one. We feel good about that. And then next time, I'm just going to uh, run briefly through, uh, in part one, um, a, 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 a sketch of how reason took on new roles and meanings in the early uh, formation of our faith in the early centuries. And then in part three here, how theology uh, developed in the early church and then in the early medieval background, okay? And that will prepare us for the last thing I want to do is show how St. Thomas, and this is as far as we will get, is able to provide a coherent understanding of how we are to think not primarily in terms of faith and reason, but rather to understand revelation in a threefold way. And that uh, is all we can do for today. Thank you very much for braving the cold. And um, I look forward to seeing you um, in one um, week.
Now, I, I, guess, I guess we're going to stop for station identification, and then we're going to have a Q&A, I'll bet. <laughs> but I'm not going to steal Melanie's thunder. Oops. Thank you so much, Father Larry. Excuse me. Uh, Father, as you know, in the Old Testament, there are uh, things, the account of things is often given only by the first cause, not by secondary causes. A trumpet blows, the walls come down, or God said, and then it is. Uh, whereas in the New Testament, uh, there develops room for secondary causes. Uh, for instance, in the collapse of the tower of, was it Siloam? I, uh, yeah, and uh, our Lord is asked, were, were those people killed because of their sins or the sins of their parents? And he said, well, neither. In other words, there must have been something wrong with the tower. Do you believe that the, um, the this development that we see in the New Testament of this uh, allowing for secondary causes is because of the primacy of reason uh, that comes with the incarnate logos. Well, I'm not sure that I have to study that, and I'm not prepared to, to say that um, it's, that it's that simple, because the, if I understand your distinction between primary and secondary causes, I think both are present in, in both testaments, although I could concede that it's more predominant in the, in the New Testament. Okay. And uh, by second, in that case, you mean a reflection on what on on, on the event and, and and trying to interpret it, giving room for different interpretations instead of simply this is what happened and, and this is why it happened. So, um, yeah, yes, I think so. Um, it, the, I, I think you could say that. Saint Thomas's um, remark that uh, and it's basically a Pauline. Uh, um, it's a Pauline insight that, that God works pedagogically. And so you're going to find increasing appeal to reason the, the, the later you progress in Revelation. So at the, at the, at the early moment, at the, you know, the departure from Egypt and so forth, the people ne were unruly. They needed to be, as, as it were, educated in the faith. And so at, at this is with St. Paul says, you know, when you're younger, um, you don't try to convince the two-year-old. I'm, I'm just... Uh, this isn't in St. Paul, as we know, but you don't try to convince the two-year-old that it's not a good thing to touch the red-hot stove, okay? And, and you don't give the child the freedom to experience that for himself or herself. You lay down the law, and then once you get older, then, then, then what you want to do is interiorize the law. So that the, the, and you become an adult in that way, so that it becomes your own. And it only becomes your own when it becomes your reason and your experience and so forth. So you see the reason for it, so you own it. It's no longer a, a, a relationship of, of, of the will where God says, I have to, uh, I, God says, do this, and so I do it because otherwise I'm going to get hurt by God. It's rather that I appropriate that as, as, as I see the reason for it. And so I, I don't need the law anymore. And that's why, in a way, uh, you know, St. Thomas suggests when you grow up, you become lawless because you are the law. And so in that sense, uh, yes, I think, I think that would be true to say. Father, um, Christianity baptizing Greek philosophy, or is this Greek philosophy filtering Christianity revelation? Um, is 
Paul really, in 1 Corinthians, using logic to explain the resurrection because he says, as the scriptures say, or as I have preached to you, could that be just a Western uh, Greco-Roman view looking into it where somebody from, say, Assyria, India, Armenia wouldn't read it that way? Or in the Psalms and the, the, you know, that you quoted about there being an addition at the end because David possibly couldn't have known about the rebuilding of the walls. But what if he did write it? It may not seem reasonable to us, but it could be revelation. So I don't know if that question makes sense, but are we approaching Christianity through the filter of reason instead of allowing the revelation to illuminate our reason? Well, next time I'll I'll be able to answer your question better, and we will see how much concretely Greek philosophy influenced especially the later scriptures, even the Old Testament. The wisdom literature is shot through uh, with Greek philosophy um, in, various, in, in, in various parts, and the New Testament even more so. Now, something like Modus Tollens, you don't have to study uh, Aristotle. That's written in, in the very structure of the human mind. Aristotle did not invent Modus Tollens any more than Pythagoras invented the Pythagorean theorem. They discovered these, these natural ways of, 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 of the way the human mind works. And uh, they're, they're formulating that for us, so we, we, have, we can name it and we can put it on the board. But in fact, St. Paul, was, was, he studied logic in great detail as a, as a Pharisee um, in their own school, okay? So um, now that school is, is, is not so steeped in Greek, but it's certainly steeped in, in, in forms of logic, diatribe, as it's called, and so forth, which means something different from the negative context we have today. But uh, they, they studied all these things very formally. You wouldn't believe how much uh, the ancients knew about these various uh, forms of thinking. Rhetoric is the best example. Rhetoric is a lost art today. Uh, when you study uh, like, uh, someone like um, Cicero uh, and uh, his use of rhetoric and, uh, is absolutely phenomenal. And they knew all sorts of ways of, of using speech and formulating rules and, and so forth that, that today are basically lost. The only people that know them are a few scholars and Ivy League schools. So knowledge is also often lost. We always think of it as gain, but that's not necessarily the case. So I, I would argue that that, that, that structure of, of logic is, is present uh, in, in, uh, for two reasons. Number one, because it's, it's present in the human mind per se. And secondly, it's helped by a, a particular tradition. In this case, it's the Greek tradition. So um, I don't think it's an importation of... of uh, I'm, I'm Paul, St. Paul and I are influenced in, in, in some respect by the same thinkers, okay? I mean, even his accounts of virtue, I will mention next time, are basically Roman um, uh, lists that he's simply putting in there and Christianizing them in some way. So he's very much drawing on, on pagan sources um, and, and doing what he talks about in Acts 17, uh, namely um, absorbing and including within the faith everything that in the Philippians 4, whatever is good, true, noble, worthy of acceptance, uh, be uh, alert to that as well. That's what he says. And he does what he says. So, But I'll expand that better next time. Uh, Father, how would you summarize what Greek philosophy added to what came before Greece? With respect to revelation? Or? Well, just as a philosophy. As a system of thinking. Well, it added so much, I don't know how to be, I mean, in every field. Um, 
it's at the basis of Western thought. Western thought is, in, in, in some respects, um, you know, uh, it's a tripod based on, um, well, maybe four great influences, not all equal, but the, uh, the, the Hebrew revelation, the, the Greek philosophy, um, and then um, Roman jurisprudence, and uh, Teutonic um, art and certain, I don't know, virtues and contributions to civilization that will emerge in the early uh, medieval period. So, um, I mean, that's, that's, it's everywhere. It's like the air we breathe. So every field of, of human endeavor has been influenced by Greek thought. Uh, and basically, um, uh, culture, to a large degree, was this synthesis of Christianity and, and, and Greek categories up until um, the, the early moderns of the, of the, of the 16th century. Uh, thank you, Father. The, uh, uh, the Logos brought into human uh, creation and into human history a respect and a kind of a dynamism of thinking that wasn't there before. I think you made that very clear. And uh, I had not heard it previously or read previously uh, how much of an enrichment and a tribute to human uh, reasoning power Jesus Christ becoming incarnate uh, gave us. Now, I think mm -hmm. we all see that and accept mm -hmm. that, mm -hmm. but uh, I hadn't run across that in prior uh, theological study, and maybe I, I'm sure you're standing on uh, the shoulders of some very good giants. Have there been any recent, say in the last century, uh, theologians who have emphasized that uh, more? Uh, it, it's a partial, ref excuse my uh, pun, but, well, it's not a pun, but uh, partial, that's a partial revelation to me, that there's an enrichment of humanity with human reason, and there's an enrichment of reason through the incarnation, and I suspect that maybe you got some of those ideas from some recent theologians, if oh, so. Uh, yeah, um, thank you. I, I just can't think of, uh, you know, it's probably mostly from St. Thomas, and that the, the, the whole structure of my argument I'm trying to build uh, over these three, uh, I sort of uh, walked into that, not through reading it from any particular thinker, but through the back door in a way. Um, one, I would like to make mention uh, next time, uh, I, I have to review it, of, of, of Pope Benedict's address in Regensburg, which was very controversial. Um, uh, but he, he's, he's been interested in doing the same thing that I've been trying to do a different way. The wrong, I, I came to see the wrong way to look at this is that you have, you know, the, the, the Judeo-Christian revelation and at some point all of a sudden after the, the scriptures are formed then you have uh, you know, the influence of Roman and Greek philosophy especially coming in and then influencing subsequent events. And that will become very clear. And I'm certain that Dr. Marshner, when you, when you get into the councils, you will see how much Greek philosophy is, is in the councils. It's, I mean, it's incredible. One of the finest achievements uh, of, 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 of church formal uh, doctrinal thinking, I would say, uh, is the work leading up to Chalcedon, from Ephesus to Chalcedon. You have the best theologians in the world coming uh, together, uh, and you would not see 
theology at that level in, uh, until the high Middle Ages, okay? I mean, it's incredible what they achieved. And they, there's no way that they could have done that and given us Chalcedon without the benefit of, of, of formal, and I'm answering your question a little bit better, of uh, Greek uh, philosophical categories. Um, so, um, and so, uh, when I was studying actually St. Thomas and his theory of revelation and the relation of, of revelation to reason, so to speak, uh, I was led back into scriptures and, then, and, and to see, you know, why has it been embraced so well, and particularly uh, in the Catholic tradition, okay? It's had a checkered career among Protestants, uh, even as late as uh, the great Calvinist uh, or Reformed theologian Karl Barth, who some consider the greatest Christian theologian of the 20th century, uh, he, even he was still a, 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 a affected by that basic um, Luther-Calvin um, keeping reason at a distance because reason, you know, is polluted. And, and, and it is to a degree. And that's just why we have to talk about the purification of reason. Reason has to go through a certain purifying process in order to become a part and parcel of the of, revel of revelation in the, either in the formal sense, that is to say, as delivered in scripture and tradition, or in the subsequent sense. Because in, in, when later, when we develop doctrine, uh, when the church begins to develop doctrine, beginning with Nicaea, it was, it was a big controversy whether to use this, this word, homoousius. It was the progressives there who said, we need, because of what the heretics are doing, we need to borrow a Greek philosophical word, even though it's tough to spell even back then, okay, we need to put this in the creed. And uh, because we can no longer go back to the simple scriptural formulations that are not working anymore, because the heretics subscribe to those. We need to, we need to, to distinguish more clearly than the scriptures are doing in order to withstand these heretical interpretations. And therefore, we're going to say that Christ is of one being or consubstantial with the Father. So a new word, basically, was formed in Greek, carried over into Latin, and we've recovered that with the new liturgy, as we should, because that was a decisive moment in the adoption of formal Greek thinking into uh, a core doctrine of our faith, which is, now, this is at the level of doctrine. This is not revelation, okay, but it's doctrine, but this is extremely important. So. I'm, 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 I've been working on where my case is hardest to prove, you know, so to speak, reason in scripture. But I, I, I could spend uh, an hour and a half from now until December in the next four centuries showing how the use of reason. I mean, I could do it with my eyes shut. There's just, it's all over the place. I mean, you stumble over it wherever you go because it's just it's everywhere. And, it's, and, and this is why you, you can't go back. There's no way. And those who pretend to do so, the fundamentalists, for example, you know, you know, you the fun the guy opens up, opens up his, and, and he can read here, you know, the doctrine of the Trinity, which took the church four centuries. He can just lift it off the pages of scriptures like that. Well, how can he do it? Is he a genius? No, he's presupposing the work of theologians and doctrines of the church that he refuses to to acknowledge. Okay, he doesn't even know what he's doing because he's reading the scriptures through the lens of subsequent doctrinal thought, which is, large in, uh, which is in large part the good work of Catholic Christian theologians using Greek categories in a new way in the interest of interpreting correctly the revelation of God.
We hope you enjoyed this presentation from the Institute of Catholic Culture. If you'd like to learn more about the mission of the Institute and how you may become a part of this important work, please visit our website at www.instituteofcatholicculture.org or call us at 540-635-7155. And may the glory of Christ Church be ever more manifest upon the earth. St. John the Evangelist, pray for us.